0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think.
2: Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from rust
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
3: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right.
2: Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. We are your hosts. Sadie Carpenter is here as always. Cult expert, cult survivor, fundamentalism survivor, Sadie Carpenter. How is life for you today?
0: Life is great. I did some excellent um, coupon work this morning. So I am riding that high right into this episode.
2: Hell to the yes. We love to see a thrifty queen save money. We support it. My name is Gabriel Hakohan. If you listen to Preacher Boys podcast with our friend Eric Squarzinski, there's a good chance that by now you will have seen that Sadie went on that show to talk about some experiences that she had while she was in the IFB. Um... Sadie, do you maybe want to talk about that a little bit before we get into our episode? Because our episode is concerning that.
0: Yeah, so I, I went on Eric's show to talk about my experiences with Russell Anderson. And that is the Anderson in Hiles Anderson College. It was years after I left the IFB before I realized that my relationship with him was not normal or okay. It was years before I was willing to confront that my relationship with him fits all of the qualifications of him grooming me. Now that relationship did not ever escalate to sexual assault or sexual impropriety by him. So I thought even once I realized that it was not okay and that this was not a a healthy or good relationship I had with him, I didn't think I really had a story to tell because it, because he did not molest or assault me. And as time went on, I changed my mind because I think the story of how he treated me and the way he treated my family is an incredible example of grooming culture. Within the IFB, it's an incredible example of how these things are so accepted and normalized that it took me years to figure out that something was not right here. So I went on the Preacher Voice podcast. I talked about that whole experience in a lot of detail. And today we want to follow that up with an episode that's even more broadly about Russell Anderson and his connection to the IFB.
2: So your experience with him is mostly covered in the interview with Eric, and I would recommend any listeners who haven't listened to it yet to go listen to that before you listen to this, because that's where the whole story is. That's where there's a lot of detail. I think we're going to give some of the, like like a cursory, like a summary of, of what that was like, but not...
0: Yeah, I will recap that on this episode, but we're going to talk about, on this episode... Uh, things that happened before I met him and things that happened after I met him and give more of a full picture of who this
2: guy was. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult, we talk about other cults, we talk about religion, we talk about fundamentalism, we talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, then there's a number of things that you can do to help support us. You can join our Patreon, where there is an extended and uncensored and ad-free version of today's episode, as well as most of our other episodes, and you'll be able to find that there, um, and and all of our back catalog, extended, uncensored, ad-free, hooray! You can join our Facebook group and our subreddit; uh, those are both called Eden Exodus, uh, and those are great places. Those are the main places where we have discussion with listeners. We're recording this before our Real Housewives of Salt Lake City episode goes out, so I don't know how the discourse around that has been, but we came out with our Bethany Beal episode and the discourse that we had in the Facebook group surrounding our thoughts on that was really interesting. Um, I thought that was fun.
0: Yeah, it was incredible. It was so thoughtful.
2: Yeah, because you and I, I think in that episode, we had different perspectives. We had different opinions on it, and for the... Really, for... I don't think that following that there were any comments that I saw in our Facebook group that were particularly disrespectful in either way, especially because it's such a contentious thing that people argue over. And I was really impressed with how respectful and how, um,
0: I love to see that a lot of the comments that we got were, well, Gavi has this part, right. And Sadie has this part, right. And this is my opinion. And this is how I would expand it out. And, um, which is exactly what I was hoping would happen with that episode. Because I think Bethany, in particular, invites a much larger conversation than snark or not snark.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you there. And I'm glad that we had that conversation. And I'm glad that we got to have the conversation with... and, And that's sort of the fun thing about the Facebook group is that we can have our conversation on the show. And then after we have the conversation on the show, we get to have the conversation with everybody who's listening to the show Um, and participate with them and they oftentimes you know send us comments or or, you know give insight that we wouldn't have thought of and so that really in my opinion is an additive experience Um, you can also yeah there's the subreddit too the subreddit is also a great place to have discussions about the show Um, I think that that's it I just need to thank our patrons before we get into the episode and then Sadie's going to give the TW and then we're going to do it Um, we have five I gave it all to your patrons your names are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley Malora King, 1010 and Todd Dale on behalf of his lovely deconstruct arena of a wife Madeline Antrim I gave it all to your patrons there is a little blooper outtake from Sadie's conversation (laughs) with Eric that is up on our Patreon just for you (laughs)
0: i have watched this video so many times and i have laughed every single time it is my new favorite thing in the world
2: (laughs) it's a little funny and by a little funny i mean a lot funny um so that's up there for you guys our faith promise missions to your patrons your names are alex p ali allen autumn of our discontent Brittany, chrisa walker dan the trans man dora j eleanor donahue hannah ross Hannah Montana, Hoosier X Fundy, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jana, Kat Henwood, Kay Turwee, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Marsha Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Melissa G. Morgs, Oh, Morgan changed her name. Congratulations. Um, Now she's no longer the Leaving Eden podcast. Ho, ho, ho. Uh,
0: Oh, she's still a ho, ho, ho. She just changed the Patreon name.
2: (laughs) Still Sadie's BFF. Rob the Methodist. Stephanie Johnson. Steve and Amy. Susie. Tara McNamara. And, as always, Wes the Cowboy. The Rootness Tootness. Um slinging six guns and uh riding horses off into the sunset thank you so much wes the cowboy and all of our faith promise missions to your patrons
0: thank you so much to our i gave it all tier in faith promise missions to your patrons and to everybody who supports us over on patreon as well as to folks who support us in non-financial ways like downloading episodes making sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast catcher you use recommending us to friends and family, posting about us on social media. All of those things are are serious contributions to what we do, and we appreciate it so much. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide, mental health, r- racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical and sexual abuse and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but we try to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling on that particular day. And if we are going to give graphic detail, we give the audience a heads up before we do so. In this episode, we are going to discuss grooming in the IFB, misogyny, and objectification of women and young girls in a lot of detail. We are not telling any stories of sexual abuse or sexual assault in this episode but we are going to be talking about like i said grooming in a lot of detail we both read um anderson's authorized biography right? Gavi enjoyed it
2: <laughs> the ifb has a tendency to write biographies of people who do not need biographies written about them
0: yeah, so the biography is called From the Coal Mines to the Gold Mines, and the author is the former Cindy Skop. I really feel like this was not her best writing work, and I personally wouldn't blame her for that. I think it was maybe the material that she was given.
2: I would agree. Um, we've read other stuff by Cindy Skop that Tons, I thought was... Yeah. I mean, this book was entirely just like, and then Russell Anderson gave money to this person, and then Russell Anderson gave money to this, like, it was literally just, here's a list of all of the people that Russell Anderson gave money to. It was very dry.
0: Yeah, just as a a literary criticism of this particular work, there are a lot of places in this biography where it feels like the subject maybe ran away with the author, just kind of had what he was going to say and didn't give her a lot of leeway
2: uh that seems apt considering that we know who the subject is and that's kind of a Mm -hmm. he doesn't like people saying no to him or people telling him maybe that's not the best idea or Mm -hmm. offering suggestions for anything that aren't exactly what he wants
0: cindy writes in the book about feeling obligated to write this. She had been asked to write this biography by her father, who was really close friends with Russell Anderson. And it is written not that long after, after Jack Hiles died. So I think this maybe felt like an obligation project. And she may not have had the material she needed, the subject she needed, or the, or the support she needed to turn out a better biography
2: yes uh that being said this book did actually give us information on it's while i do kind of get annoyed that the fundy that the ifb will write biographies about like literally anybody who is just a pastor and then give that pastor a biography it is useful in that these are people who it's hard to track down details about their lives and so the fact that they Make sure everyone has a biography means that if you want to, you know, track down details about any Fundy's lives, any Fundy pastor's lives, then there will be a biography about them.
0: My my last fun fact before I dig into the biographical information, I opened up my copy of this book and found that it was signed by both Russell Anderson and by Cindy Scob.
2: Wow. So that was fun. So it'll be worth $5.86 on eBay rather than $3.88 on eBay.
0: Yep. So Russell Anderson was born in 1931 in Floyd County, Kentucky. Unlike a lot of boys in his generation, he did graduate from high school before starting work in the coal mines, which were the primary industry in that area. When the coal mines started to shut down, He moved to Michigan with most of his family members and started working in the drywall business. Within a few years, he started his own drywall company. He from there, he was off to the races as an entrepreneur gonna live the American dream. He married his wife, Maxine, in his late 20s. He was not a Christian at the time, but Maxine was. And she eventually convinced him to come to church with her where he got fundy saved. And this was the turning point of his life. Anderson became really convinced of the importance of personal soul winning and confrontational soul winning because of his salvation experience. He felt that the reason it took him so long to get saved was that no one really confronted him about it enough. And this does Mm. make sense historically. This is the 1950s this is way before the soul winning methods that the IFB were using when I was coming up in the IFB or that the IFB are using today.
2: How, how do you feel reading that?
0: It just, it tracks historically. It makes sense.
2: That's true. That was a day when, that was a time when, I don't know if like people really made a good living do this, but there would be people who were door-to-door salesmen. And vacuum that was their cleaner salesmen. So, yeah, yeah. Vacuum cleaner salesmen.
0: It was, it was very much a thing. Even, um I think, wasn't Ray Kroc a door-to-door salesman before he became an industrial salesman before he founded McDonald's?
2: I that sounds right. Yeah, I mean that that's not the only piece of um, very nineteen sixties nineteen fifties ish business advice that is in this book. So I want to I want to read through read through this quote right here, which I think was an interesting quote, uh, and it says. Tommy Sue, the Anderson's oldest daughter, says that she and her sisters learned from their father the following principles of hard work, which are, one, don't look at the clock while you are working. Two, arrive 10 minutes early every day. Three, don't stop working until your time is up. Four, stay a few extra minutes after work. Five, don't stay on the phone while you are at work. Six, don't talk to other secretaries while you are at work. And then... (coughs) I
0: mean, <laughs> the other secretaries. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean s- uh, s- seven. If you have time to lean, you have time to clean. Eight. Whistle <laughs> while you work. <laughs> no. Um.
0: You added cool. seven and eight, right?
2: I I did. Like I, I reading this, I did get a little bit triggered. I'm like, oh, the, he's one of those.
0: And it's interesting when you read his success story and how he eventually made his money. The biography talks about his first business successes and setbacks. So he was doing pretty well with his drywall business. and But then someone who owed him money went out of business, which left him in the hole. So he bought and DIY flipped a house and sold that house to get his company back on track, he credited his ability to bounce back from financial setbacks to the fact that he continued to tithe throughout bad financial times, Hmm. of course.
2: That's very similar to the Green family Mm -hmm. uh, of Hobby Lobby when we talked about them last year.
0: It's surprising that they weren't friends. It really is.
2: Although maybe the Green family weren't as weren't as King James version only pre-millennial pre-trib inspired and preserved as Russell yeah. Anderson was because he was such a stickler for that stuff. And I think that if you're both contemporaries who are both large financiers of churches and various churches and various religious institutions, then I think that if you're a Russell Anderson, you don't want to associate with somebody that isn't specifically your vein of Christian fundamentalist.
0: Yeah, and as we're going to talk about toward the end of this episode, Anderson would break ties with actually anybody over the King James Bible. So this is when Anderson got into real estate in the 60s. He had this drywall business that was doing well, and then somebody went out of business owing him money, and he had to make it back up and then after that he started a drywall supply business because he didn't like paying full, full price for his supplies and then he started a drywall supply dr- a drywall supply delivery business because he didn't like paying full price for delivering the supplies from his own drywall supply business and then he got into building apartment buildings and building houses and that's how he actually made the real money
2: talk about vertical integration yeah i mean from a business standpoint it makes sense that you would want to have everything proprietary to you you know i mean i can't fault that as a businessman
1: yes for sure
2: but what i can fault um i don't know i got a little bit curious about russell anderson's real estate holdings and now just want to preface this by saying that real estate isn't in any way an unconventional make way to make money and it isn't necessarily a sketchy way to make money but real estate gives unscrupulous business people great latitude to have less than what we would describe as christian business practices so sure enough when i looked up the reviews of the re of of renters from the various real estate holdings that he had the buildings that he that you know, he, he would build housing developments and then rent them out to people to live in. And I looked at some reviews of the buildings that he owned. Uh, I found many complaints of rats, roaches, mold, delays in maintenance being done, people being cheated out of their security deposits, among other things. Every, you know, I've had a bad landlord. This was a nightmare living situation for me thing that we have ever you know dealt with that i've ever dealt with that you've ever dealt with but all of those things all of those things are complaints that were levied against russell anderson i should note from anonymous people who are complaining about Mm -hmm. him but there were enough of them that it leads me to think, okay maybe there's something there uh one review that i read said that the main front desk lady at the housing development that anderson owned was very nice like the the main front desk lady that you go to when you want to complain and and uh you know get maintenance done the lady that you call apparently she's very nice but apparently her boss had a cruel temper and seemed to be out to get tenants in the worst way possible now i don't know if the her boss is russell anderson but it sounds not dissimilar from the man that you described to eric as somebody who yelled at the waitress for his coffee not being hot enough
0: i also find this really interesting because back in this story where some guy went out of business and left anderson's company in the lurch this story is from his authorized biography there was another guy who accused russell anderson of owing him two thousand dollars According to Anderson, he did not owe him $2,000. The $2,000 was owed by the guy who went out of business. But as told in the authorized biography, Anderson chose to pay the $2,000 to protect his own good name and protect his Christian testimony so that he could continue to witness to the guy who thought he owed him $2,000. And he makes a big deal of... It was for my testimony. It was because I want to have Christian business practices. It's because God owns this company and it's all God's money. And and that, to me, doesn't line up super well with being a landlord who doesn't treat your tenants well, if that, in fact, was him.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems like slumlord behavior.
0: Yeah, and I can't... I don't have any more information than you do about Russell Anderson's apartments, but I have a lot of information about other Hiles Anderson staff members who owned apartments and trailer parks in the uh, Hammond, Crown Point, etc. area. And I will probably talk about that at some point. Can't wait. This is where I think the story gets a little bit more interesting than his business successes. In 1960, Anderson heard Jack Hiles preach for the first time he started showing up anytime hiles preached anywhere close to his home in michigan and started writing letters to hiles and through this hiles and anderson became friends according to the authorized biography and it is interesting that they chose to write this down in a book that anybody can read anderson offered to give hiles over 300 apartments so that he could either rent them out or sell them and use the money for ministry and Hiles declined. Hmm. Now, that's that's one thing. He offered him a big gift. He turned down the gift. The part that I wouldn't have put in my own book was that Anderson put Hiles and John R. Rice on the board of his business and paid them each $2,000 a year, although they didn't have to do anything or attend any meetings. Huh. And I just... I know this is a thing that people do, but maybe if I was a, a minister, I wouldn't do that.
2: That's kind of sketchy.
0: Like maybe if I were, maybe if I was a minister, I wouldn't be taking $2,000 a year in the 60s for not doing anything with no transparency and never disclosing that to anybody until after, until my kid writes about it in a book after I'm dead.
2: How much money is $2,000 in? Holy $2,000 in 1960 is $20,000 today. So he got paid 20 grand to not do anything a year. That is.
0: And like, this is, I don't know. This is a thing that people do. And I have no way of making any kind of speculation about whether it was reported on taxes or anything like that. I would think it likely was because Anderson would have had his taxes in order. He would not have messed with that.
2: No, but I do feel like it's it's more likely that this is in order to give Jack Hiles some level of definable tax liability in order to maybe as like a smokescreen for other things that he's got going on with like using church money as a slush fund. That's what jumps to mind for me.
0: Yeah, I'm not I'm not concerned about Anderson being shady with that two thousand dollars a year and not reporting it because I really think I don't think Knowing his personality, I don't think he would have ever messed with having a dime out of place on his taxes. He was too fastidious with his money for that. What I do worry about is where did that two thousand bucks go? On once it got into Heil's pocket, where did it
2: go? I mean it's a it's a no show job that pays twenty grand a year.
0: Can I get one of those?
2: (laughs) Yeah, like I mean seriously, it's a no a no show job that gets you paid twenty grand a year. I don't know that. Why would you give that to somebody just because you like them? That seems weird to me. And that's not Russell Anderson giving $20,000 a year to uh, the ministries of Jack Hiles and John R. Rice. That's him giving $20,000 a year to Jack Hiles and John R. Rice personally as a verifiable taxable source of income.
0: So shortly after this, um, Anderson started getting invited to speak at the Sword of the Lord conferences. Okay. I I always wondered, Anderson had only been saved for 10 years? When he started speaking at Sword of the Lord conferences and speaking at pastor school, he became a really big name, a famous speaker within fundamentalism. And the story that I was always told was, well, he's famous for being rich. He's famous because God blesses him and he's going to tell you how to be financially blessed by God too. But the more I read this, the more I wonder if he just bought his way onto that platform.
2: Yeah. And the question that I'm wondering is what did paying that money get him access to?
0: I mean, I I think it was this, I think it was the platform of pastor school and the platform of
2: Sword of the Lord. Do you know who uh, James Dolan is?
0: Oh, I've heard the name, but I couldn't tell you who it is.
2: James Dolan is the guy that owns Madison Square Garden, uh, MSG Entertainment, and like he owns the New York Knicks. He plays in a band called JD and the Straight Shot, which is basically just like a, a boomer rock vanity project where it's just james dolan the billionaire who owns msg entertainment and whatever musicians he's hired to back him up and then whenever any band that's like a boomer rock band um apologies to people who don't like that i'm using boomer rock band but like you know bands like the eagles or uh leonard Skinnerd or i don't know like whenever they play madison square all, Garden. The, all
0: the bands that i love as long as I don't read anything written by anybody associated with the band.
2: Yeah. No, but like all of those, all of the, you know, the good bands from like the 70s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, that era, like the the, the rock bands from that era, anytime they play Madison Square Garden, they have to have JD in the straight shot as their opener.
1: Uh-huh. It's, yeah.
2: It's giving James Dolan. Yeah. Unless there's something else that being a rich guy in the IFB gets you access to.
0: Well, you've heard Did you watch any videos of Anderson speaking? Yeah. It's always the same sermon.
2: Yeah, I was I was a coal mine, un- uneducated coal miner and he sounds like a uh, boomhauer.
0: And then that's boomhauer slander. And then he and then he makes a joke. Like he makes a really lame joke and then stops for you to and looks at you like laugh now. Yeah. That was and that was every sermon. His sermons were always exactly the same. And it does make you wonder why is somebody who, whose sermons, who has no theological education beyond being a member of a church, who has no training in public speaking, who has only been a Christian for at this time, a decade, who only speaks really about one topic pertaining to religion, which is religion and money or tithing. Why is he getting invited to speak? At these pinnacle of fundamentalism conferences, why is he getting invited to give practically the same sermon over and over and over again year after year? And like on one hand, I get it. Money is a topic that people want to listen to. People talk about getting how to get more money. Like there's a reason that Dave Ramsey still has listeners. <laughs> it's because the the topic of how to how do I get more money is a very popular topic that people want to listen to. <laughs>
2: I understand why a businessman with religious convictions would want to donate money to a religious organization. We did an episode a few months back about Hobby Lobby. That's a I think that's a perfect example of that. The difference between Russell Anderson and the Green family is that no one I think in the Green family is out there being the pastor. Like they might speak at CPAC or something, but they're not out speaking at like a a church conference as a pastor saying i'm i'm a minister they aren't being the speaker themselves they're perfectly happy to be the money behind it but stay out of the spotlight i just don't understand the motivation for a guy like him to go around the country and spend his own money to hang out with pastors and their families and take them out to eat while everybody is expected to laugh at his jokes because surely with that kind of money you could just have a gaggle of hangers-on and minders and sycophants who would Make your every whim a reality if you wanted to.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to talk about my theory for why he did that a little bit later. I do think there's a possibility, a shade of a possibility, (laughs) that the money maybe wasn't the only way that he ingratiated himself to Jack Hiles. And this, uh, this surprised me and shook me up a little bit. According to the authorized biography, Anderson was on, quote a Sword of the Lord cruise to Nassau, Bahamas, end quote, with mm. Jack Hiles. So, Sword of the Lord is an IFB newspaper. They print um, sermons and advertisements for big ref- revivals and that sort of thing. You might remember Hiles accused Robert Sumner of making up the Nischick story because he wanted to be editor of Sword of the Lord. John R. Rice was the one of the Biggest names associated with Sword of the Lord for many many years, and Curtis Hudson was another name that was he- heavily associated with Sword of the Lord because of the Hiles battle. The ties between First Baptist of Hammond and the Sword of the Lord were strained, but before that, Sword of the Lord and Jack Hiles were tight. We're very close.
2: So this was a cruise to the Bahamas that Jack Hiles went on. Russell Anderson went on, and it was for the staff of the newspaper.
0: It seems like like staff of the newspaper and fans of the newspaper and the sort of people who might be published in the newspaper, I vaguely remember there, there mm. have been Baptist cruises. There have been things like this run by the Independent Fundamental Baptist where they'll get a bunch of people together and have a Baptist-approved cruise ship where there's no alcohol and no bikinis and all that.
2: Well, that sounds nice.
0: You know, I think it sounds like a good time for them.
2: If you want to go on a cruise and you want to keep it modest, you should be able to go on a cruise with other people who want to keep it modest.
0: So this cruise, though, do you remember? I'm quoting directly from Wizard of God.
2: Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. I remember now.
0: In 1968, Jack Hiles decided to take his staff on a cruise to the Bahamas. Of course, he insisted that Jenny and I go along. Jenny was constantly away from me. She had been designated a tour director, and she and Hiles had regular planning meetings. Beverly Hiles and I would end up sitting awkwardly at the dinner table by ourselves while our spouses had their marathon planning meetings somewhere on the huge ocean liner. Beverly and I would retire to our respective cabins and not see Jenny and Jack until the next morning. Complaining about it to Jenny only brought a violent and emotional outburst. One time, Jack and Jenny faked an argument at the dinner table. She got up and in tears, angrily walked out of the dining hall. Sheepishly, Jack got up and told Beverly and me that he would go look for Jenny to apologize and, quote, calm her down. That calming down took the rest of the day.
2: This is the cruise that it is speculated where jack and jenny actually hooked up and russell and i mean russell anderson so he was there for that and he suppose he was probably at the next table over
0: so that is i know nobody unfortunately has this book right now that it's page 56 and 57 in chapter four of the wizard of god i don't know i do not know if it's the same cruise but it is a cruise in a very short time frame to the same destination. So like maybe
2: I'm assuming that this is the same cruise. Not that we ever thought that Vic would be making it up.
0: It just it sounds like the same cruise. I cannot prove that it
2: is. It's wild that it was written about in both I mean that that like cuz this book came out after Jack Hiles died and it was written by Jack Hiles' daughter.
0: Right. So my copy is a first printing, and it is from 2003. And Hiles died in
2: 2001. And The Wizard of God came out in, what, 90... 89 or 90. 80, 90 yeah. Let me
1: look. Let me um,
2: look. 90. Cindy wouldn't have read the wizard of god because you can't read the wizard of god and admit that you read the wizard of god but it seems kind of insane to me that she would reference the cruise that vic nischik also referenced in his same book and just drop that in there as a detail and nobody would say you don't want to mention the cruise maybe leave that bit out uh we can't tell you why but uh we don't think that it's good just for we don't want any, anyone to raise speculation or we don't want anyone to connect the dots see i don't know who would have known because here so here's the thing um
0: the people who were on the cruise who would have known that something was funny would have been encouraged to overlook it put it out of their head not gossip about it never talk about it and put it out of your mind so and they would have been conditioned to not be suspicious in the first place and to not notice things of that variety in the first place and then only a few people would have ever read the wizard of God. Like, of course, Ray Young has read it. And Eddie Lapina has read it. Um, and probably the, the risk management director and maybe Wilkerson, although probably freaking not, uh, given what Eric told us about his conversation with Wilkerson, he's protected his, his pure eyes from that. Um, and I'm sure that Hiles read it and I'm sure that Scott read it. Um, But the people of First Baptist Church, except for that very thin slice at the very, very top of the administration, were encouraged not to read this book. It's totally plausible to me that people in the lower echelons of the First Baptist Church staff and people who are First Baptist Church members would find a copy of Wizard of God, buy it from the Goodwill or whatever, and take it home and burn it without reading it. It is completely plausible to me that that is a thing that happened so who is on the editing staff of cindy's book that could ever have known about that this is the cruise that happened when cindy herself was like 10 years old that was referenced in wizard of god like there's nobody that would be able to make that connection for her
2: i don't know i think that Russell Anderson's biography, Russell Anderson's authorized biography probably got sent through the First Baptist Church of Hammond PR department slash, uh, you know, whatever their crisis management there.
0: They didn't have crisis management in 2003. That was before some of the more recent crises.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I guess I don't know. I know that
0: for a fact. I know the person who is their crisis management person. I know who that is. And um, <laughs> didn't know that he, did not, he was not in that position in 2003.
2: I wonder if Russell Anderson paid for the cruise.
0: Who knows? Or if he paid for the Hiles family to go on the cruise, you know?
2: Yeah, if he paid for everyone to go on, or yeah, I I mean I don't know how many people who he paid for to go on there. I I guess if you're paying a dude two thousand dollars a year, which is equivalent to twenty thousand dollars a year, you are, I'm sure, bankrolling any vacations that he wants to go on as well. So yeah. Russell Anderson I,
0: Anderson wasn't really rich enough in 1968 to take everybody on a cruise. I don't think because he made his first mill. The, the first <laughs> it's in this book. Hold on, I can find it quickly. Uh, making his first there's a making his first million. Yeah, so that cruise in 68 was around the time that he oh, okay, actually, so the cruise happened right after he officially became a millionaire. And Anderson, according to the authorized biography, which I have reason to doubt, according to the biography, Anderson was never going to tell anybody that he had become a millionaire. He thought that he should be humble and keep it to himself. But he slipped up and told one woman on this cruise and she went and spilled the beans to everybody and it got printed in the sword of the lord now i don't know how that lines up with mr here hold my watch i don't know about that but that's the official story is that he got outed as a millionaire because of this cruise
2: it's giving i won't tell anyone if i win the lottery but there will be signs
0: (laughs) (laughs) if i win the lottery i'm gonna make you hold my watch
2: No, I wouldn't do that. And then I'll buy
0: you a nice watch. So here's the thing. The the Hiles and the Andersons, and I did not know about this until I reread this book. Of course, I've read this book as a kid, but I reread this book as an adult and it clicked. The Hiles family and the Anderson family co-owned a duplex and a boat together in Michigan. They frequently went on vacations together. There are a ton of pictures of, of like beverly and maxine together and jack and russell together and the whole all four of them on multiple vacations through the 60s and 70s the book prints letters from hiles to anderson that read quote i have no better friend always signed love and says that hiles called anderson every saturday morning from 9 to 9 15 a.m which is really interesting coming from a guy who often talked about how he didn't have a lot of close friends and really didn't even have emotional intimacy with his wife in the books that he wrote.
2: You have to wonder then if Hiles, if if Jack Hiles saw Russell Anderson and was like, this guy thinks I'm the best preacher in the world. If I can probably just keep getting him to give me money as long as I act like I'm his friend.
0: Yeah. Or they were really friends. Or, like, was this guy one of the few people on the planet that Jack Hiles was willing to be emotionally tied to? None of this is what I would call direct evidence that, oh, this, therefore, that. None of this is Mm. proof of anything. But that is a lot of time to spend with somebody and not have an inkling of what is going on in their marriage and their family.
2: And if they're sharing property together, I mean, if you're having an extramarital affair, having boat and multiple properties that you could conceivably get to and have plausible deniability is going to be more useful to you
0: and who are you sharing walls with that doesn't know your business
2: i don't know this whole thing is it seems very sketchy to me
0: i it's like i said it's not proof this is not proof of anything but it sure is suspicious
2: I don't know, because it is Jack Hiles who said, you don't have friends, no new friends, no old friends. Don't be close with anybody because they can't know the real you. Don't be close with your wife. Don't be close with your kids. There has to be a secret mystery between you guys, or the allure will die, the The marriage will die.
0: It's it's all of those hours spent together on vacation. You never saw him call Jenny Niscik. In 1972... Anderson gave Hiles $300,000 towards the starting of a Bible college and Hiles-Anderson College was born. Uh, Anderson has helped start up to as many as 10 different Bible colleges, depending on how you count it, including Commonwealth Baptist College, Texas Baptist College, and Grace Baptist College with John Jenkins, who you may remember from Let Us Pray. Rough track record there as far as Bible colleges go. Oof. Yikes! Texas Baptist and John Jenkins and
2: Hiles Anderson.
0: Oh, anyway, the only thing he could have possibly done worse is give Stephen Anderson money.
2: I mean, Stephen Anderson is like the most old paths of the old paths.
0: We are very lucky that the two of them never hit it off.
2: Oh my god, man! Can you imagine if Stephen Anderson had a Bible college?
0: We are very we are fortunate. The world is fortunate. <laughs> so there's a lot of gap. In the biography that I've been working from, I don't know a whole lot about what Anderson was doing business-wise in the 80s or 90s, other than he was speaking at Hiles Anderson College every year, speaking at sort of the Lord Conferences and pastor school. There are a lot of soul-winning stories. It makes me think 80s and 90s, he was kind of just doing his business thing and then being famous in fundamentalism on the side. Some of these soul-winning stories are pretty typical there's a story about how he babysat kids so his pastor could tell their parents how to get saved, or a story about he was out soul winning and somebody's pet parrot landed on his head and he let the parrot sit on his head so that people could get saved. It's the it's the same stuff like I sacrificed so that somebody could focus on the gospel. It's every soul winning story ever.
2: Throwing uh filet fish sandwiches out of a helicopter so that <laughs> people would
0: That was so that people would come to Miles <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> Although, in that world, kind of the same thing. There are mixed in with these soul winning stories and business stories and name dropping Jack Hiles on every page. There are a lot of references to his wealth. I pulled this one story randomly. I'm not quite sure why it stuck out to me, but it did. Here's the quote. Once while soul winning with Pastor John Vaprazan, a baby spit up on Dr. Anderson's cashmere coat these experiences display the unselfishness dr anderson puts forth as a soul winning partner anything that needs to be done to keep the lost soul's attention on the soul winner is considered worthwhile just cashmere coat you know just dropped in he's so unselfish
2: yeah i mean this it's giving preachers and sneakers
0: but he didn't want anybody to know he was a millionaire remember anderson Sold his business in 1999 and semi-retired. He still had a lot of real estate transactions, but he was done trying to build his business bigger. After selling his business, um, the way that he framed what he did next was trying to out God. So Hmm. he would make this succession of deals with God of, I'm going to, God, I'm going to give you a million dollars in a year. And then he would make 1.5 million, million that year. So the next year he would say, God, I'm going to give you 1.5 million. And then the next year he'd make three million. And it just kept going up because he was tithing or because that's how investments and good luck work, but because he was tithing. (laughs) So he started paying soul winners in Mexico City and the Philippines. Anderson claimed to have had millions of people saved through these programs. I really think I heard him say he also employed full-time soul winners in Hawaii. It wasn't in this biography, so either I'm wrong or that was something that happened after the biography came out. I did some napkin math with Eric on his show And it does seem like Anderson was claiming about 20% of all living Filipinos were saved through his program at one point.
2: I looked at this section of the book. So there's a section of the book where he has, he goes like year by year from like the late 1990s through like 2015 and says, okay, and this year I say uh, 400,000 people got saved. Next year, 500. The next year, 550. The next year, 600. And it goes all the way up to... Like 2015, apparently they're counting roughly like one and a half million souls, one to Jesus per year. And there was a note down there that said 4,000 souls, one per day. I don't know. These numbers seemed kind of crazy to me because he said what he said he was paying people a dollar an hour to go out soul winning,
0: which he said was a good wage for the places in the world where they lived, which Eric contests.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he looked into that and he found out that it's actually not a very good wage. When you were soul winning on a good day, how many people would you actually get through the plan of salvation?
0: So... For sake of comparing apples to apples, we're going to talk about soul winning marathons where we would go out for eight or 10 hours at a time rather than like typical Saturday soul winning, which would be between an hour and three hours. When we would have soul winning marathons, we would specifically look for groups of people to target or we would go to a place where a lot of people are like we would go to um, a mall or a park and try to witness like just blitz the park and try to witness to everybody in the park as opposed to regular soul winning which was knocking on doors and maybe nobody answers the door. So with that in mind when I did soul winning marathons for me personally a really incredible day would be like 40 to 50 people. There were real star soul winners from First Baptist Church of Hammond's team group that would regular, regularly turn in 100 or 200 people saved on a soul winning marathon day. They uh, and the way this was presented to me as somebody in a teen group somewhere else was those kids are just so close to the power of God and Jack Scott that the Holy Spirit leads them to get more people saved. Now, in reality, they just had more people because they were right by Chicago and they knew all the tricks to get a crowd of 100 people together at one time. Well, if you can get a 100 kids to listen to you preach and maybe 50 of them get saved at once, you only have to do that four times to turn in 200 people saved. Anyway, rant over. I would say for a full 8 to 10 hours out soul winning, depending on luck, Anything between 50 and 200 could be a really good day.
2: How many people do you think it would take for them to be able to report 4,000 souls one per day? Like, if a really good <coughs> let's day. Do yeah, more math. yeah, let's do more napkin math. Um,
0: let's say.
2: Sadie does weird math again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's say average between 50 and 200 so 200 plus 50 is 250 divided by 2 is 125 let's say 125 is the av- or the um the median number
2: and so that's an eight hours so that costs eight dollars for him to
0: so four thousand per person divided by 125 is 30 that would be 32 people if the median number were 125 souls
2: so what's 32 times eight? Is
0: 256.
2: It's costing him $256 per day to get a million and a half people saved per year, is the calculation I'm getting. Because he's paying them a dollar an hour, and I'm assuming eight hour days.
0: Yeah. And based on the amount of money that he said he gave to this, well, wait, let's see. 256 times 365, that's $93,440 a year. And in the book, I do think he, I, I do think the figure was floated of three hundred thousand dollars.
2: Okay, so that they probably were getting like a third the number of people that.
0: Yeah, roughly. What's that? Roughly forty-five.
2: Yeah, either that or the other possibility is that they're just hey, here's a job where we'll pay you eight dollars a day, and you can just tell them that you got a bunch of people saved and go and do whatever you want and you get $8 a day and then just make up the numbers and make up the names of, I don't know, 50 people to...
0: Right. <clears throat> so it's a little bit... Uh, I, found, I found the 300,000, that's a number of people saved. That doesn't tell us how much the actual money was. So mm-hmm. hard to know.
2: This scheme just seems less and less likely, especially because if you're going around and knocking on doors and trying to get people saved... They're just gonna be like, look, I just need you to tell me that you did it so I can put your name down because somebody is paying me.
0: If you are in if you are in one geographical area and like the, the napkin math that I did with Eric is that <clears throat> around the time that he was claiming 20 million people in the Philippines um, were saved, the population of the Philippines crossed a hundred thousand or a hundred million. So that's roughly a fifth of the population. And if you are based in one geographical area and you're claiming that a fifth of the people in the entire country have been saved, I think you got some doubles in there, based on my own experience and statistical
2: probability. Hold on, let me look up the religious breakdown of...
0: This also, while you're doing that, this also gets a little bit muddied because for a while, Anderson claim to be the pastor of something called Millionaire's Baptist Church. This is from page 99 of my copy of the authorized biography. There is a letter printed on Millionaire's Baptist Church letterhead. Dear Dr. Scop, I would like to share with you an update on the church that I pastor, the Millionaire's Baptist Church. As you probably know, I have members in my church from at least six different countries. I have recently reviewed reports from Dr. Kevin Wynn and Dr. Rick Martin, the number of souls that were led to the Lord in 2002 by my church members who are Bible college students that I pay to go soul winning when they are not in class are Dr. Kevin Wynne, 781,933 and Dr. Rick Martin, 254,881. I began my church in 1999. In 1999, my members saw 65,000 souls saved. Blah, 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 blah. Numbers, numbers. If the Lord lets me live another four years, my plans are to see at least five million decisions for Christ and to build at least 100 more churches, which will make over 500 churches. I'm sharing these figures with you only to praise the Lord, not brag. I also thank the Lord for the influence that Dr. Jack Hiles and Dr. John R. Rice had on my life, as well as others. So he claimed to be the pastor of Millionaire's Baptist Church, which, as far as I know, never had a church building or place to meet or a real pastor that like showed up and did things for the church as pastors tend to do. So these these numbers are further confused and muddied because these personal soul winners for a while were claiming to be members of his church, Millionaires Baptist Church, while also attending Kevin Wynn's church or Rick Martin's church or whatever. And it, it just gets very confusing. And was there a possibility that I could have figured it all out and explained how it worked Yes, there was that possibility, but I am emotionally exhausted from talking about this man for like two weeks now, and I didn't want to, so I am going to leave it there.
2: So I looked up the religious breakdown of the Philippines. Um, Please share seventy-eight point. This is according to Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt. Seventy-eight point eight percent Roman Catholic. Thank you, Spanish colonization. Two point six percent Church of Christ. One point four percent Philippine Independent Church. One point nine percent other Christians. 6.4% 6.4% Islam, and other or none is 8.9%. So it doesn't say uh, Independent Baptist or uh, New Testament Church, whatever the IFB would call themselves in Spanish, 20%. So these numbers are bunk. But Or maybe that's yeah. just Wikipedia being owned by the devil and trying to... Well,
0: the by the Catholics, probably. Yeah,
2: yeah it's owned by the Catholics and owned by the <laughs> devil, and they're trying to keep the uh, the evidence of Russell Anderson's fantastic salvation of the whole entire country out of the... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> so,
0: that's that's kind of the background on his biography. Do you want to go take up the offering and talk a little bit about my experience with him?
2: That sounds good. Let's do that.
0: that group is called eden exodus tell a friend tell a family member tell your worst enemy the leaving eden podcast is a fully independent podcast and we really appreciate your support now back to the show
2: we are back from our break we're recording this before the preacher boys episode drops so we don't know what the response to that has been and we're kind of bracing ourselves for
0: i might still not know (laughs) yeah when this episode comes out i may turn off my phone forever
2: (laughs) yeah no but like seriously um coming out and saying stuff uh that is less than peachy about a guy like russell anderson and actually has implications of something far darker and something more nefarious
0: yeah this has been being scary and it's not that i didn't already respect all of my friends our podcast collaborators um all of these people that i admire who are survivors that have come forward with their stories i had so much respect for you previous to this but this has raised the bar um just having to experience myself <laughs> how scary this is
2: if phil hudson didn't have words for you after our uh let us pray oh, I'm sure he did. episode then Now I'm sure Phil Hudson's going to have words for you. (laughs) But it's okay. They're not going to be able to get to you because satellites are in space and the internet has to go (laughs) to space and come back down. And I don't think he believes in space.
1: (laughs) Phil
0: Phil Hudson can't get me because the curvature of the earth is in his way.
2: He's going to say, oh, where is she? She's uh, west of here. I'm going to throw a javelin and hope it hits her. (laughs) oh man Um, it's
0: okay if you try if he tries to if he tries to get to me i'll just sail off the edge of the earth and let a dragon eat me
2: i I want to display my up uh, utmost respect for the bravery that you have shown in coming forward with this story and also express the utter ick that i feel when i hear you tell this story is is mainly what i'm trying to say here
0: Well, you were kind of part of me realizing how bad this story really was, because it was. I very casually texted you like, "Hey, um, if a seventy-year-old man at one point told me that I was his girlfriend and like told me what to wear to go on a date with him, that would be like not normal, right?"
2: Yes, (laughs) hypothetically. Um, That was that. You must have sent me that in like twenty twenty, or twenty one, or something like that. I think Chuck was
0: born, so I think it would have been twenty one. Yeah. Because it was just starting to sink in, like, as I was in the early days of doing this podcast. Oh, that was not, no, that wasn't good. That was not
2: normal. And you told me before that you tried to do all sorts of, like, repressed memory therapy to see if if, if, there was abuse that you had covered up.
0: Yeah. And I had learned a lot by, like, 2014, 2015, 2016 about the prevalence of sexual abuse in the IFB. And I had this moment of doubting myself of is there something that I have blocked out? So I did um, regression hypnotherapy because it, it was so shocking and difficult for me to accept as someone who has raised in the IFB just how dangerous and how predatory of a situation that was for a child growing up there. And I doubted myself, so I did uh, hypnotherapy sessions to see if any repressed memories came up. And maybe that's not something that I would suggest people do or maybe not something that I would go do now, like knowing what I know about Michelle remembers. I don't think I'd go back and do that um, again. (laughs) But even with that, specific memories of being abused did not come up. And so that's not something that I claim because that's not something I have any memory of but as i was working through my memories of anderson it became clear that while he did not sexually abuse me our relationship was not appropriate was not healthy and is a symptom of the much larger problem within the ifb
2: so do you want to do a quick recap of the story that you told to eric yeah go listen if you're listening to this now go listen to the preacher boys podcast episode that sadie was on uh if you want it in greater detail um it's a fascinating story but it's creepy
0: yeah because what i think gavi has like follow-up questions
2: yeah just a couple
0: after retiring uh anderson would travel from church to church and preach you could You could just request that he would come to your church and preach one of his, you know, three sermons about tithing or God blessing you financially or being a coal miner. And he was different from other guest preachers because you were not expected to pay for his travel or his hotel rooms or anything like that. He would pay for himself. And this is how I met him. My dad, as a pastor, invited him to come preach at our church And um, like I said, on Preacher Boys, when he would visit churches around the country, sometimes he would choose to financially, quote unquote, adopt churches and give them a large amount of money, often for like a new building or a new project that they were going to be starting. When I was a preteen and young teenager, Russell Anderson visited my church fairly frequently for a period of a couple of years, and during that time, he informed me that I was going to be his girlfriend now. And I was around 12 years old at the time. He would frame taking my family out to eat as us going on a date. He would constantly make references to me being his girlfriend. He would always want to sit beside me in the car whenever we were going anywhere. And he sent me gifts and postcards from his travels to Hawaii. And all of this is such typical grooming behavior. All of this is stuff that falls under the category of grooming in my case this never escalated to abuse but the the grooming behavior was still harmful to me and that's a lot of what i talked about in my episode with eric
2: and when he would come by to visit your church it was under the pretext of maybe russell anderson is coming to give us money and he's gonna adopt our church
0: yeah i have a lot to say about that (laughs)
2: Okay, that does seem like a weird dynamic because you can book this guy, but he might give you money if you reach out and book him.
0: The whole thing is a weird vibe and an unbalanced power dynamic. So Anderson wanted to come preach at your church. He wanted you to make a big deal over him and promote his experience, like promote his guest appearance at your church and bring a lot of visitors to the church. And he liked to be made a big deal over. He also liked to choose churches and then give them a whole bunch of money. But it was made very clear, at least to me, that you were never allowed to ask him for money outright. What my impression always was that he was that he hated being asked for money. And if you actually asked verbally, he would turn you down and never come back. He only adopted the churches that he felt had a really high chance of success. And if you were one of the churches that he chose to give a bunch of money to you, you as the church would have to report soul winning numbers, report church membership to him personally, because he wants a return on his financial investment. So it's this whole very weird, complicated vibe of, he likes doing this, but it has to be exactly his way. And you can't ask him to do the thing that he likes to do. Um, He likes giving people money, but you cannot ask him for money. And it's an unbalanced power dynamic between Anderson and me, but also between Anderson and my family as the pastor's family, and also between him and the whole church. And my impression is that that Power dynamic was what he really enjoyed i think he really relished that power
2: so if anderson was coming would you guys just pull out all the stops and try to boost attendance you know through Mm -hmm. the roof
0: yeah try to have everybody there the building's got to be cleaner than it's ever been you got to have your very best singers doing the special everything has got to be perfect
2: and so at this time like so your church was small do you, do you know of churches that are a similar size that he also gave money to?
0: I can't say that I know of any churches because there wasn't any transparency about who he was giving money to. There's a list of churches he helped start in his biography, but there's no list of churches that he financially donated to once they were already off the ground. He would make a lot of claims from the pulpit. I gave away X million dollars last year, or I helped X number of churches last year, but he wouldn't ever tell you who those churches were. And I think there's a little bit of, there's an IFB shame around money. Hmm. They have a whole complex around money. And it's, it's a, I think a church If you were a struggling church and Russell Anderson gave you $50,000 for a down payment on a new building, your church members would know that Russell Anderson did that. But your pastor friend across town maybe wouldn't know and it would absolutely not be on your church website because... Within the Mm. IFB, you need to appear to be successful all on your own because that means you're being blessed by God. And having to accept a large donation to get your new building built is less of a blessing from God than just having the money on your own. So, there is Hmm. a a culture of shame and secrecy around money to some extent. So, a church that Anderson helped start, I gave so-and-so X amount of dollars to start a new church in this town is not shameful. But there's a little bit of shame towards this church was in a bunch of debt and I had to give them this much money or this church didn't have a down payment for their new building and I had to give them this much money. That does carry a little bit of shame. So that's my theory as to why we don't have a list of churches that he donated to once they were already existing. I would strongly lean toward believing that these churches do exist um, because of the number and variety of different sources that I have seen referencing him adopting pre-existing churches and giving them a bunch of money and then expecting things from them.
2: It just seems weird to me that Christianity is a religion that's based off of somebody sacrificing to pay off the sin debt of all of humanity. (laughs) Yet it's somehow shameful that, oh, we're a small church and we're struggling to, you know, do the Lord's work in a sinful world. And the world is sinful. And so we have not been blessed financially. And this has been our struggle. But here comes a man of God who has been blessed by the Lord, who sees the work that we're doing and he has come to rescue us. Thank you so much. Like it seems so weird that that would be a shameful thing to me.
0: It's because of the IFB thing around numbers of inflating your church numbers, inflating your baptisms and your soul winning numbers because you have to appear successful because that is the metric of the blessing of God. And that is why first Baptist church of Hammond was the leader for so many years because Jack Hiles got to put on pastor school and teach everybody else how to do it because he had a huge church. It's, It's all about numbers, but wealth is seen as risky, potentially sinful. So personal poverty is glorified, unless you're Russell Anderson, but your church being poor is shameful because that means that God's not blessing you with the people and the numbers and the salvations and the baptisms.
2: So if he's deciding who to give money to based on what like growth potential soul winning numbers i feel like successful ifb churches would be saying thank you russell anderson for helping us grow our ministry we now have 250 families thanks to your help look at the work that the lord is doing in our lives i don't know i just don't yeah um
0: it's so there's this whole like ifb complex with money and I maybe this is a topic that we should revisit because now I'm thinking of some friends that I have that might have something. I, I was a friend hmm. of mine just popped into my head that might have something to say about the IFB's relationship with money.
2: I mean, we have plans to talk about consumerism and society coming forward. Uh, yeah. And we've talked about Tom Kimmel but i think revisiting the idea of money prosperity gospel those sorts of things would be fascinating
0: yeah because that's i think that's maybe one of the last thing things that some of us deconstruct and the older i get and the more i move into you know grown up home ownership life and all of that the more i realize oh this really messed me up like the way that i think about money is weird and twisted and difficult yeah Um, So in the IFB, they believe as long as you're working hard enough and right with God and praying hard enough and following Jack Hiles, you will become a giant, wealthy, successful church. And if that hasn't happened for you yet, it's one of two things. It's either God is testing you or there's sin in the camp. So Anderson isn't looking at traditional business metrics for growth potential most of the time. He's looking if he's looking to adopt somebody or, you know, give a church a bunch of money, he's not looking for these traditional metrics of is this church going to grow? He's looking for is this church going to be right with God and follow Jack
2: Hiles to the letter. But that was you guys. True. I guess God was testing us. I mean, no, but like I I I I've met your family. I you know, I, I met your father and i know he was the you guys were the ones that did everything right and by the book and he wasn't the one who was going to cut corners or he wasn't the one who was going to resort to dirty tactics even if those were the tactics that jack hiles was using maybe they weren't the tactics that he was telling everybody that he was using but so russell anderson uh uh, he, he comes to town and he's deciding whether or not he's going to give your family money and he's behaving, I would say, very inappropriately towards you. And he then doesn't decide that he's going to give money to your family. Did you feel like you had done something wrong? Did you guys feel like you had not lived up to Jack Hiles standards when he decided not to give you guys money?
0: I really don't know how other people in my church may have felt. But I know I personally just really internalized this i was just overwhelmed with grief and guilt thinking what did i do wrong and why weren't we good enough Mm. because every time he would visit there was this hope it was new hope well this might be the time he sees something that he likes and he decides to give us a bunch of money this might be the time that All of our lives are changed positively forever. And what I referenced, but maybe didn't put into words as well as I would have liked to in my interview with Eric, is that that's an incredibly dangerous situation to be in as a young girl. In my particular case, that danger did not develop into something harmful happening beyond the the harm of being groomed and the emotional harm of that emotional roller coaster that i was forced to ride for all of those years putting any child regardless of of his grooming behavior toward me it, even if you take that completely out of the scenario this is still dangerous emotionally inappropriate for a child to experience to feel that the way the financial future of their entire church and their family is resting on their behavior that is never an appropriate pressure to put on a child,
2: and so he's going, saying, "Oh, this is my girlfriend, and you're 12 years old." Mm-hmm. He's saying, "Oh, we're going on a date, and your family is a chaperon." So he's, you know, going out to eat with your family and saying, "Oh, this is my girlfriend. She's 12 years old, having you wear like fur coats and stuff."
0: The the and the, the assertion that I'm making is. That the that pressure, that terminology, that behavior is in and of itself inappropriate and not okay.
2: Do, do you think that there's anything that you or your family could have done that would have made him decide to give you guys money?
0: Looking back, no, I don't I don't think there was and we we, i think when people are determined to abuse other people particularly children they tend to find a way to do so and it is impossible to know in a particular situation why someone chooses not to abuse even in a consensual adult situation Why does any partner choose not to be emotionally or physically abusive to their partner? Often, it is because they are not an abuser. (laughs) And in other cases, um, there are more complicated reasons. I think Anderson saw something at our church that made him think it was never going to grow. Like Like I said to Eric, the church my dad took in Illinois was a hot mess. The church building, the the people there, um a, a large percentage of the congregation were truly wonderful people. Salt of the earth people with good hearts who cared about other humans and also happened to be pretty darn IFB. The people in that church had many of them had suffered religious abuse and spiritual abuse previous to being in the IFB or previous to my dad taking the church. A lot of them had deep hurts from life in general. And I still speak out of absolute love for a large percentage of the people that I attended that church with for 10 years. The church was in massive debt when my dad took the job. Um, actually, my dad used to tell this story, and it's kind of funny. He went to a restaurant with the pastoral search committee. and to get more details about the financial standing of the church and what his pay would be if he accepted the position as pastor. And the head deacon, he asked, "What will my pay be? And the head deacon answered. and just as he answered, someone dropped a plate of dishes like a bus person dropped an entire busing tray of dishes in the restaurant and there was this massive noise and he did not hear the head deacon when the head deacon told him what the pay was going to be for this church and he took that at the time being a hyper fundamentalist he took that as a sign from god that he didn't need to know and that god wanted him to take the church the what he was, what my father was taught at Hiles Anderson was that if God calls you someplace, if the people of a church vote and say that they think God is calling you to pastor, you don't turn that down except for under exceptional circumstances. So he felt that God told him to take this church. The church was in absolutely massive debt. They owned their building, but the building was not in great repair, and in a pretty bad location. Basically asking somebody from the nicer suburbs of uh, St. Louis to attend church, where our church was, it's like asking somebody who lives in the West Hills or the nice parts of North Portland to drive to 122nd in Burnside and park their car at the MAX station there to go to church.
2: <laughs> it, it just seems so weird to me in that, if you're a christian you know you believe jesus walks with everybody the rich the poor everyone sure
0: but churches have to pay staff they have to pay property you know property taxes and upkeep their buildings and pay the electric bill and if you need people to tithe money so that you can do those things do you want to be the person who goes and knocks on 500 doors in the west hills to convince people to drive to gresham to go to church do you want that job gabby
2: no and this is coming that's me coming from somebody who at one point was uh, worked for the postal service and was trying to apply to be a mailman but
0: (laughs) yeah do you do you want do you want to try to convince people to do that because it's not going to happen.
2: No, I know. I j- I'm just like, <sighs> it's It's frustrating to me just because like I grew up in a religious tradition where if you save the life of one person, then you save the world.
0: Yeah. And I love that. That's a, a really beautiful concept. But you also grew up in a religious tradition where they don't typically struggle to keep the lights on at church.
2: I, uh, th- But that's all like all the more reason why. Somebody like Russell Anderson, who has the means, should say, "This is a ch- like this is a church that people here believe in Jesus, and mm-hmm. the, you know, and they practice Christian love, and I should help them because they're deeply in need. Not yeah, you, not like be like the, the it's like the Ayn Rand Jesus that says." <laughs> No, this says, "Oh, this person can't help this church can't help themselves, then why should I help them?" <laughs> like, what are we doing yeah, here?
0: And obviously I don't huh. know what was going on in his head, but that is what I feel his attitude was. So, so I don't know what he saw that made him feel that we weren't worthy of an investment. I think later on there was hope at some point that he would buy us a new building in a better location, um, but it just it never panned out.
2: This just gives me a really bitter taste in my mouth.
0: It does me too. But like, I want to be really clear that I'm not talking about this now because I have a grudge because he didn't give us a bunch of money. Um, This is something that I grieved heavily at one point in my life. And I feel at peace with the fact that he never financially supported us. Anderson is dead. Uh, I'm happy with the things that I've accomplished in life. I am on track to one day hopefully catching up from the financial and the educational damage that the IFB inflicted on me. And I have to wonder now like with my perspective and having been through the, the grief that I needed to go through about this um, years ago. From my perspective now, what if he had given us a bunch of money and gotten gotten us a really nice new building and our church would have taken off and we had become a really big IFB church? And when I had gone to Hiles Anderson, my experience would have been different because my dad would have been a big name pastor. And what if I had been further indoctrinated into fundamentalism and not experienced the things that broke my commitment to that world and would I have ever gotten out? So I'm I am I'm not bitter about the way that things turned out. I was at one point for sure, <laughs> but I think I have kind of processed all of that pretty effectively. And I'm not here to defame Russell Anderson. Um, if I were here to defame him, it would be very easy for me to make up a story about things that didn't happen <laughs> because the precursors to those things did happen. In a lot of ways, I think he was more sincere than some other fundamentalists. I, My perception of him uh, from all the, all the times that I met him, the meals that I've shared with him, I think he really did care about his money going to get people saved. He was very um, single-minded about that. And I don't think that was fake. I think he really did. He was just very simple-minded, very single-minded kind of a guy. So, I think he blocked out a lot of periphery to that that could have been useful information for him to have. But I think, on a fundamental level, he really did care about his money going to procure Fundy salvations. I think he really did care about that. But the power that his money gave him over people, I think messed him up as a person I think the ability to control people like a puppet master really did some damage to him to his moral fiber I don't know exactly how to put it but I hope that makes sense Uh, I think the power changed him and that is both on him as a person and on the IFB for giving him that power and I can tell you for sure that the cycle of hope and disappointment and the adult emotional and financial burdens that i shouldered as a very young preteen teenager absolutely did some damage to me
2: and we have the i mean there's we have the pictures of you wearing the fur coat out with him and you are a a kid you are a child and he is an old man i mean we have these pictures it's not like disputable that these things happened I I cannot get my head around the an old like a, a a man in his 70s telling a 12 13 14 whatever year old girl oh you're my girlfriend that is
0: Well okay what how do you get there how do you get to being a 70 something year old man who thinks this is okay hmm. is the answer years and years of Fame and adulation within the IFB being elevated to the largest and most prominent stages that the IFB has because of your money, being exposed to purity culture, being exposed to the misogyny of the IFB, the idea that women are disposable, that women's bodies are collateral, um, the idea that women are kind of PC non-persons does years and years of cycling through. Because by the time I met him, he had been heavily involved in this IFB subculture for almost 40 years or, well, I guess over 40 years because I did not meet him prior to 2000 and he met Jack Hiles in 1960. It's, I'm not excusing him, nor am I putting this on him personally more than i should be i am i think it's fair to blame both him as a person for choosing the choices that he made and on the ifb culture that enabled and emboldened those choices over many many
2: years yeah it, 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 it just seems weird to me that everyone is just okay with this because he's this rich guy because he has this kind of money and he can do whatever he wants
0: well, because he's rich and because he's an old man in the IFB, and that is seen as harmless. Um, I think something that Eric pointed out that was extremely helpful was this, what you are told in the IFB that nothing can go wrong here. Nothing Nothing bad ever happens here within our bubble. And if you believe that, you might see something as harmless when it is actually kind of creepy.
2: And then he just ditches you and stops all communication with you guys once you, what, turn 14, 15? About 14. 14. Ugh. I don't, like, and I know the IFB is toxic and bad, um, but I know your family and I know that they're good people. Nobody can question the work ethic or the willingness to make sacrifices on behalf of the church. Hanging a possibility of money over the head of a poor family and saying, you have to do what I say, and maybe you'll get... The-. That seems like a really f***ing un-Christian thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's just like treating people like you're dance monkeys, and just saying, you know, dance for me, monkey, dance for me, monkey, and maybe I'll give you some money. It's j- It's...
0: Yeah, and I don't think that's who this guy was necessarily in 1960. I think this behavior escalated over time and was enabled, at the very least, by the IFB culture around money and the IFB culture around fame and the IFB culture around numbers, but maybe also by his relationship with Jack Hiles and maybe also by things he saw in that relationship. This is, this is psychoanalysis. This is not... You know, I don't have... Evidence of how this particular man became the particular way that he did. But I hope it's okay for me to guess because I did. I knew the guy. I think he came to enjoy and came to love that feeling of having others bow down to him. Like you said, dance monkey. I think he got that feeling once and decided he loved it. And... There was nobody there to check that kind of behavior because they all wanted his money. So his behavior got more and more extreme and the desire for his money got more and more extreme. And it was this symbiotic relationship of toxicity and nastiness.
2: Just here's my money and now I can do whatever I want.
0: I think. To me, that's what makes my story valuable. And I really hope that other people are going to see that because it is not about me wanting attention for horrible things that happened to me because frankly, a lot worse things happened to me in the IFB than having to be a 70 year old guy's girlfriend when I was 12. Um, (laughs) Yikes. It's, it's, I think the valuable information here is how did he become that person? Who let this happen? How did that play out? You know, what does what and what does this all mean for me now that he's dead?
2: Yeah. I don't know. It it just seems crazy to 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 say, I have all this money, let's see if I can get them to let me say that their 12-year-old daughter is my girlfriend now, and I'm an old-ass man. Let's see if I can get them to just, uh, what I can get them to put up with, and how long it'll take before they tell me no, and if they ever tell me no. And that that's just...
0: And, and, I, and I think the other valuable point is the feminist one, which is, what the f*** does that mean to me? The 12-year-old in question
2: that you're literally like something that can be bought
0: right and like and obviously that didn't happen to me fortunately i do not get the answer of why this uh, this situation did not escalate to abuse which is something that i have to deal with on my own um like nobody else can help me carry that i do not get the privilege of knowing Whether he was, maybe he was simply not an abuser in that way, in in the terms of physical abuse or sexual abuse. Maybe he just liked the power and that's what he enjoyed and he didn't need or desire for it to escalate in a different direction. Maybe he is an abuser who chose not to abuse me. Maybe there's a million different possibilities and I think... The thing for me is I don't get that answer. I get to live the rest of my life with that question. And that's the injustice to me of this situation. Is that my emotional life is still a sacrifice on the altar of the IFB. Still. Almost 20 years after the last time I spoke to that man. 10 years after leaving the IFB my ability to have answers to my own questions about my own life is still a sacrifice on the altar of the IFB and i am kind of hoping that getting this story out there takes my like gives me that agency back because i am tired of pieces of me Still being stolen and not returned by the IFB.
2: Well, it's possible that you'll get answers about this once the interview yeah. with Eric drops because I like we know for a fact that there are at least two other people that he did this with.
0: At least two probably three.
2: And those are people whose names are going to stay private um, unless they personally want to Mm -hmm. Speak up about it, but we know for a fact that there are at least two, probably three. If there are three, then there are probably more. And if there are three that you know that nothing happened to, I mean, I don't know. Like it's just like the the Kathy quote. What is it? It's almost like every time that you speak out, you're grabbing the hand of somebody who needs to come forward. So we don't know. There might be a lot more answers about this in the coming weeks.
0: I'm hoping it doesn't come out that he was a sexual abuser. I don't, I don't want anybody to have gone through that. My hope uh, is that anybody else who experienced this kind of grooming behavior from him comes forward or any other inappropriate behavior from him. But I'm kind of hoping that the answer is that he was just that twisted that he wanted to see people perform for, you know, he wanted to see the control that he had over people. I'm hoping that's all it is. It's... <laughs> hard for me to talk about this because it's hard for me to feel like this is a story worth telling partially because there was not sexual assault in my story it makes me feel guilty because i feel like i'm framing a man who didn't physically harm me for something that he could he could possibly have seen it as innocent behavior so my my mind wants to make excuses for him to such an w- such a wild level, it, it is so weird to like be inside my head right now, because my mind wants to say, well, he probably thought it was innocent, and then he stopped this behavior when I became a teenager because he saw me growing up and didn't think it was innocent anymore. But the answer to that is, in what world is that okay? In what world is that harmless? Little girls are people and shouldn't be treated that way. <laughs> and in reality, it is possible that he saw this behavior as harmless because of the generation that he was from and because of his mindset. I don't know what his mindset was. It is completely possible that his mindset was very childlike, innocent, pure for lack of a better word, and that he didn't see it as harmful, but in reality, this behavior did cause harm, regardless of how he saw it at the time. It is a different harm than grooming that later escalates to sexual assault, but we don't have to categorize. One of my favorite things that Eric said in our episode was we don't have to categorize more harm or less harm. We can just say that is harmful behavior, and this is grooming behavior, regardless of what his intent was. And an adult person should be held responsible for not doing that kind of behavior, regardless of their intent. As difficult as this story has been for me to tell, I think it's perhaps easier for me to tell my story than for people who were sexually assaulted to tell their story. I know and love many people, many people who were victims of sexual assault in the IFB that have decided that they are not going to tell their story in this kind of public platform because they will heal better in private. And I, of course, completely respect that. And of course, respect and admire to the absolute maximum all of my friends and the people whose stories that I've heard who have come forward about abuse in the IFB. So I'm hoping that what my story can do, my story is a little different than the ones that we most often hear. And I'm really hoping that I can demonstrate how grooming is prevalent in IFB spaces, how grooming is a thing that just happens to almost every single person growing up as a a fab girl child in the IFB. Because as much as I have doubted myself telling this story, calling a child your girlfriend is grooming. Sending presents like that to one specific child and not to other children and that that child is the child that you're calling your girlfriend, that is grooming. Offering a child things or implying that you, they, that you will give them things if they continue to please you is grooming. And at the end of the day, I don't need to make a false allegation of assault to call him out on this behavior. I don't need to add a single detail to my story that wasn't there to begin with because what he actually did do was not okay
2: and he was also doing all this while he was hanging the possibility of money over your family's head
0: right and that's dangerous that is it that is a dangerous position for a child to be in it doesn't become okay or harmless or not dangerous just because a specific bad thing didn't happen in this particular case
2: i i'm remembering back to an early episode when we you talked about how children in the IFB are, after they reach a certain age, basically expected to be mini adults. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that very much blurs the line between what IFB leadership and, and elder people see as acceptable conduct and what they believe it doesn't see, they don't see as acceptable conduct?
0: I absolutely do. So let's walk through that. In my story, everybody knew that the church had financial problems. Church business meetings regarding the financial problems would be carried out with children present. That's not all that unusual for churches that have that sort of business meeting. Unfortunately, my dad was the pastor of the church and the livelihood of my family depended on the livelihood of the church. (laughs) So, unintentionally and without really thinking about it, I was put under financial stress, financial strain, financial awareness that was inappropriate for a child of my age from the time that I was eight or nine years old. It wasn't intentional as in someone telling me you need to take this on, but it was almost accidental, almost by osmosis. When Russell Anderson came to see us, my help In preparing for him to come visit, my behavior while he was present, um, outside of my personal weirdness with him, um, just my behavior as a pastor's child was supposed to be as close to perfect as I could possibly make it. That is a pressure that is, I don't believe, is appropriate for a young child. But then when Anderson wanted to call me his girlfriend when he wanted me to dress up a certain way for him, I was suddenly a little child again. And this is innocent and this is acceptable because I'm just a child. So in some ways, I was forced to inhabit the roles of both an adult and a child in this scenario. Does that make sense?
2: yes oh okay that was kind of a a difficult section of the show i want to maybe um so you told me a story and you told eric a story about him yelling at the waitress when his coffee wasn't hot enough Mm -hmm. and also he would take off his rolex and drop it in your hand and ask you how does it feel to be holding? Wh- how much money was it? Was it sixty? Th- like,
1: oh,
0: I feel like he would throw different numbers around regarding his watch, and he had a huge, huge diamond ring, like the size of a typical class ring. Wow! And it wasn't one big diamond, but many smaller diamonds set in a huge huge gold like signet ring Mm. and he you know I can't remember what figure he gave exactly for the watch and the ring I feel like he said the ring itself was either 80k or 100k and the watch I really don't remember I feel like what he said was 40,000
2: 40,000
0: but it's a little I'm not 100% on the number
2: that is such a, I mean, I don't need to say that. that's such a ludicrously thing to do.
0: Oh yeah, it's gross. And he did that. He did that. Did. He's gone. He did that to practically everybody he met. He loved doing it to servers at restaurants, which looking back is extra gross.
2: Do you think he tipped well?
0: I don't think I would ever have known for sure. Uh, My dad would have known. No, go get the Ouija board. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm so, so, I mean, actually, when we talk about consumerism later in this spring, I really want to talk about watch collecting and just supreme, because I've spent a little bit of time in that world and talking to people in that world. And it's like, it the the amount of money that some things cost and the amount of money that people are willing to spend on things is, and, and spend beyond their... F- means is totally insane um but the whole idea of how does it feel to own to to hold you know forty thousand dollars in your hand kind of thing is an attitude that i have definitely encountered before and every time i see it i can't help but think that it's unbelievably cringe.
0: Yeah, and especially doing <clears throat> like it's a way to wield power and money over people who don't have power and money. Yeah. Like somebody like a server in a restaurant or a 13-year-old kid. And when you're doing it to somebody of a little bit higher status, like a pastor whose church you're visiting or a church member at the church that you're visiting, somebody who's not service industry or a child, <clears throat> you are demeaning them you're informing them that you put them on the same level as you know service industry or child which if you're this kind of person aren't people that you respect or treat well
2: out of curiosity do you know what kind of rolex it was because i want because he Mm. he says what it's worth 40 grand he says i need to look this up i need to know if he was like capping or if he was for real
0: So one time we went and we looked on the Rolex website. I think when I first told you the story, we went on the Rolex website to try to track it down. It's been like, it's been a while.
2: It's been like three years um yeah.
0: two years at least
2: because when you f- you first told me the story i was like first starting to like kind of be interested in watches but not like i mean i i do not I, i'll tell this to anybody i i do not own any watches that i've spent more than 300 dollars on watches are jewelry if if you want to know what time it is you know look at your fucking phone like the, it's <laughs> it, they're jewelry watches are jewelry okay like it, 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 it's, it, it's fine. It's accessories. Don't, like, I don't pretend like it's anything but. But like, people spend tens of thousands of dollars on them. I'm just trying to... Because I know what amount of money these kinds of watches are worth. I'm trying to wrap my head around what kind of Rolex would have been worth $60,000 in 2005.
0: So I think um, he said it was custom.
2: 40000 or however much. Yeah. So custom, okay.
0: I think it was custom. Hmm. Um. So it was... A gold, mm. wa- a a solid gold watch that would have come with a diamond bezel, but then he had gone. The bezel is like that's the round part around the face of the watch, right?
2: Yeah the 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 bezel is like the part that's around the it's on the outside of the the, the glass. Part. Yeah, yeah. Um.
0: So I think he had one that would have been a diamond bezel, but then he had gone and added like a second circle around that with a whole bunch more diamonds.
2: Rolex doesn't do custom watches for Russell Anderson, the Baptist minister from Ypsilanti Michigan, you know, the they're not in the business of doing that. I'm so wait, so the whole I
0: mean, are, but they do customs?
2: No. So the the whole watch was gold except for the diamonds, right?
0: Yeah, and weighed like a pound. <laughs> Probably not, but it was heavy.
2: (laughs) So it's probably like a yellow gold day date, which is um, also known as I mean, if you're a guy like Russell Anderson, of course, you have a yellow gold day date. That's the watch Dick Cheney, Donald Trump, Tony Soprano. That's the those are the people that wear that one. Um, So if you're Russell Anderson, of course, you're going to have that one because you want to I mean, you want to be the kind of guy who thinks he's that important.
0: (laughs) You know, it is, it is maybe a blessing that he never fell in with Donald Trump.
2: Oh, I'm sure that the dude was like a massive Trump supporter.
0: It wouldn't surprise me. I I think, see, here's, okay, I said a few minutes ago, I think Anderson was more sincere than other fundies that I have known. Not that his motivations were always good or he was always perfect, clearly, but I think he was a very principled person. And I would not be surprised if he was the kind of person who voted for Trump, but wouldn't have wanted to actually associate with him or be friends with him because of his immorality, which is not great, but it's more principled, you know what I mean, than some other fundamentalist.
2: But I just can't help but think that Russell Anderson is the kind of guy who would see Trump's like Oh, I need to feel like I'm better and more important than everybody in the room, and if I'm not, then that's emasculating. That seems like that—that's him to a T.
0: Yeah, they could have just had a personality clash.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, because he probably would, if he'd have gotten into the room with Donald Trump, he would have been like, "Oh, this guy is actually the top dog on top of me. I don't like it." Was it just, so? Was it just a diamond dial, or so? Okay, so it was it diamond? Be- so it wasn't like a full bust down.
0: So I googled a yellow gold. Uh, what did you say?
2: Yellow gold day date.
0: Yeah, I googled a yellow gold day date and that's the one. That's the style. But what I when I googled it, it has one row of diamonds around the face on the bezel. Mm-hmm. I think he had more diamonds added. I'm looking at the picture of us and it's very annoying because his suit jacket falls over the watch and you can't see his watch.
2: Only until like now was a rolex day date ever worth like forty thousand dollars and that's what they sell for like new on like secondhand they're worth less than that and also if it's non-original and if you have anything done to it that is not original then that makes it less valuable if you spend forty thousand dollars on a brand new rolex day date in today's money and then you pay ten thousand dollars to get diamonds put on it then you go to sell it and you'll get like fifteen thousand dollars for it because it's not original. Um, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I just think like I, I I really think that he got like he got like just the gaudiest watch there is and he's like it's still not gaudy enough for me. I'd need to show that I have like even less class and even less taste than that's too funny.
0: Yeah, I I like I shopped around a little bit online and the one that looks most like his to me was the Rolex Day-Date President 18-karat yellow gold with bark finish. Regardless of of how much it was actually worth, I will tell you that that watch and the giant ring were both just tacky.
2: Dude, this is unbelievably cringe behavior.
0: And the, and I can't remember like, I can't remember what the exact price that he would say for the watch or the ring was. I feel like he would sometimes, if he was really going over the top, he would put both the watch and the ring in somebody's hand and then he would say something. I know it was at least 100000 for both.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's why he hung around the IFE because he's like, I know that I can pull this trick and everybody's going to be upset because none of them have been around this kind of money before. When, to me, it's like, they say money screams and wealth whispers.
0: A lot of screaming.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this is a lot of screaming. Also, the thing that I think about this is kind of funny. And I don't set store by this personally. Because, you know, wear what you want to wear. But traditionally, and especially for men of Russell Anderson's ilk, men from his era, diamonds on the watch is for women, not for men.
0: Yeah, wear what you want to wear, but...
2: (laughs) Yeah, wear what you want to wear. But if you're like an old school kind of guy like russell anderson was diamonds on the watch that's for women that's not for men uh anyway i like i just wanted to you know run this down make sure that it was clear that this dude was a poser and a fraud and tacky as hell and cringe as hell we have an episode coming up about how consumerism is maybe a cult i don't know there might be cult-like aspects of it and we'll think about it talk about it um
0: this whole thing like yeah i have not revisited these memories in such a long time, until I started having this conversation about him and talking to you, talking to friends, talking to Eric, it really starts to sink in the kind of person that would do this sort of thing, the kind of person that would flaunt their wealth like that to anybody, but especially to people that you know are poor as dirt and do it over and over again over a course of years. That's an interesting type of person.
2: Do you want to go to break? And then when we come back, we'll talk about various ministries that Russell Anderson has helped start up and also his fallout between uh, the, the fallout between him and the ministry at First Baptist Church of Hammond.
3: Let's do it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free
3: shipping and 365 day returns.
2: So we've talked about Russell Anderson and how he got his stature within the IFB by giving money to lots of churches. And in this final section, we're going to talk about the implications of that and what actually happens when that goes wrong. In his biography, there is a list printed of all of the church plants that Russell Anderson helped found. In doing my research for this episode, I found that a lot of them had almost identical statements of faith, uh, and this is—you can find this on their on your website. And you know, oftentimes it'll be almost a uh, word for word copied and pasted one to the other. And while I don't think that that's like an unnatural thing that an IFB church would have. Uh, You know, something like, we believe the Bible is the word of God, the King James Version is God's word in English, inspired and preserved, blah, 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 blah. It does seem very much like you're taking Anderson's money, now you've got to be his kind of church. And not that I think these IFB pastors would be anything other than, you know, an old paths IFB kind of church, but I've looked at a lot of IFB church websites and they can range from being exactly this to... Some that I've seen that talk about election, meaning that they would be Calvinist. And some that I've seen that talk about mid-trib or post-trib rapture. There's a range of beliefs, but it seems like all of the ones that Russell Anderson funds have almost the exact same doctrines or pretty much the exact same doctrines. It's a cute cat sounding. (laughs) One thing that I also found when doing my research. uh, I'm
0: sorry, Harry is cracking me up.
2: <clears throat> it's, he I can hear him on my end um <laughs> One thing that I found when I was doing my research is that probably about 40 percent of the churches that Russell Anderson says that he helped found according to the book the the biography about 40 percent of them are now defunct like one or two of them or three of them look like they're thriving IFB churches but most of them look like they're pretty small ifB churches and I checked websites. And it seems like even a few of them have moved away from being the hardcore IFB. And I found... Ooh, interesting. Yeah. And I found this when I read their statements of faith. By the way, having looked at this many IFB websites, Jesus Christ, the web design is, on some of these leaves, much to be desired. No, the best one that I found, I sent you this one where they have a sermon illustration in the statement of faith. You did send me that one, yes. <laughs> Let me find this. I need to find this. Um,. You click on the What We Believe for Harbor Light Baptist Church uh, at harborlightbaptistchurch.org, and I'm reading this right now. It says, you walk into a mall and are met by numerous clothing stores. Their windows are actively dressed, and the salespeople are ready to greet you. The clothing looks at like, I'm just like, what? This is the statement of faith here, and blah, 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 blah. It's talking about the quality of the product line, the service is extended to customers, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. <laughs> And then, like, finally, you get down, and it's like, this is why we think of the Baptist distinctives. I'm like, okay, you're doing a fucking sermon illustration in your statement of faith.
0: Yeah, the point of this was, you don't just <laughs> want a church; you want the best church, or the church that fits you the best, and the church that fits you the best is the most Baptist one. Trust us.
2: So, that's kind of a long walk for a short drink of water. You know, I mean, it would be easier, like, if they wanted to know that that's the kind of church that they were, they should have just put, like, most of these at the front, they just put, like, we believe the Bible is the word of God, we believe that the King James Bible is God's word in English, inspired and preserved.
0: Yeah, if you if you say King James inspired and pre- preserved, people are going to know what you're about.
2: <laughs> For about 40% of these church plants that he posts about helping out being like the funding for the startup for their church, being the VC bro for their church uh, startup, like 40% of them are now defunct. And I I checked all of these um, and it took me like several hours to do, but I did it. I'm curious, what is the, what would you say like the failure rate is for a Baptist church, for an IFB church?
0: For an IFB church or an IFB church plant?
2: yeah for for like an i f b church plant, if they're like you're going to uh Kenosha, Wisconsin, and you're going to be a uh, lighthouse Baptist Church of Kenosha, Wisconsin, and
0: uh that's hard to say without defining failure because is failure like goes out of business in a year or in ten years, or if the church makes it for five years and then merges with a different church, is that a failure or a success? hmm. It's that's, I think, too broad of a question to try to answer what I can tell you, though. A lot of church plants and a lot of IFB churches struggle on for a very long time because of IFB theology, because of IFB philosophy of church building. There are many, many IFB churches that are down to absolute bare bones. One pastor, no programs, Maybe they own their church building and just have to pay the property taxes every year, or maybe they're meeting in a house or a cheap rented building or a hotel or something, and they have five members or 10 members or 20 members or 30 members, and they just struggle on for years and years and years and can just barely come up with enough money to pay the pastor and the property taxes and the electricity bill every month or Maybe they don't even have that much and the pastor gets a part-time job to support himself and his family and supplement what the church is able to pay. So especially even more so if you are a church plant, if you're the pastor of a church plant, you came into this with the idea that it's going to be a struggle. So you might be inclined to stick it out until you absolutely can't because you've been indoctrinated with the IFB never quit never get up give up and also because the social shame of quitting is intense some IFB church plants now send like a pastor and pastor's wife and then like four families from the church on purpose to give them a, like a starter pack and that mm-hmm. has been way more successful although those churches almost always end up going non-denominational <laughs> but it is more su- more successful to like actually getting a church places back in the old day when they sent literally like a guy it was tough going for a lot of people so it's hard to it's hard to put a number on it and that's some of the details as to why
2: i guess it's like the team missions versus solo missionary directive because yes. <clears throat> um, so i looked up a lot of these churches in the towns that they're in And most of them are not large i think the largest cities that any of these churches there these church plants were in are either like suburbs or exurbs of of major metros like there was one that's now defunct that was an ifb church in vancouver washington but most of these churches are in towns of like <laughs> five to ten thousand people you know i've got nothing against trying to start a church in a small town like but like giving money to start a church but not continuing to fund that church Until they can be self-sustaining almost feels like financially abusive to me like you're sending somebody on a mission and you're almost like marooning them out and then abandoning them to live in poverty while you're a millionaire who makes his reputation off of being the guy that supports churches and while some of these churches I guess they continue to be successful like 40% of them have failed and I'm sure that like none of these churches fail without like the families of the pastor and the pastor going through hell trying to save it
0: tell me about it
2: <clears throat> the most of the ones that are left like if you look at them from the outside it does not look like they're thriving
0: i mean what is a what is a thriving IFB church what is a thriving person within an IFB church it is a unique combination i think of different factors because we're talking about that this is Heil's church manual culture it is believed if you follow Jack Hile's way, then God will bless your ministry. And God blessing your ministry means numbers and money. So if God is not blessing your ministry, somebody's doing something wrong. So there is a, a blame for anybody who does not successfully build a church with lots of numbers and lots of money. There is intense shame and pastors will even try to hide that from other pastors by lying about numbers or just by not mentioning them and trying to pretend that everything is okay when everything is not okay it's it, it is a an ifb cultural thing
2: i mean i guess if you're lying to russell anderson and telling him that you're getting a million and a half people save the year in the philippines then <laughs> you know what what are numbers what what is math
0: yeah and i would point out that While those numbers of salvations in Mexico City and the Philippines seem a little suspicious to me, we don't know who along the line is lying. There's no reason to think that it's the pastors who are in charge of these churches and in charge of these programs, when it could be a leader under them. It could be the individual soul winners who are getting paid, or it could have been Russell Anderson fudging the numbers. It could have been anybody in that chain would have had motivation to do it if those numbers were anything other than 100% real, which we don't know.
2: Like, Do you remember in early COVID when Elon Musk made a big deal out of donating? He's like, I'm donating thousands of ventilators to these hospitals, but he really just gave them CPAP machines. And then he's talking about how great he is and everyone's saying, oh, Elon Musk is the best.
0: No, I did not remember that.
2: So that's the best case scenario. That's if uh, Russell Anderson decides to give you money, then you might get marooned off in the middle of nowhere somewhere, and your family might go through hell, and then your church is going to close.
0: So let's talk about what happened when he did give somebody money, and then he didn't like what they did after that.
2: Yeah, let's do that. Are are we going to talk about Hiles Anderson?
0: Yeah. Okay. So we have talked about Jack Scop's King James Bible scandal, which is hilarious because... Scop was actually being reasonable, and all of the fundies hated it. So, in uh, around 2008-2009, Jack Scop started saying, the King James Bible is preserved by God, but not inspired by God. God inspired, you know, Moses and Paul and Luke and those dudes to actually write the words of the Bible for the first time onto parchment or whatever. And... That was where the inspiration happened, but God did not come down and re inspire the King James Bible translators. The King James isn't magical, it's just the best and most important translation. That was Scott's position. Uh, a large section of the IFB flipped their lids over this because they believe that God did come down and re inspire the King James Bible translators to make the King James actually perfect. And equally as inspired by God is the original Hebrew and Greek that the Bible was written in. In 2009, Russell Anderson was one of those people.
2: It's an insane belief. It is...
0: This is something. In 2009, Anderson wrote to Jack Scott over this issue. He said that he would not be speaking at pastor school or at the college anymore because of Scott's position on the King James. And this does explain why... Um, I never saw him at the college when I was int- attending there. Later on, after Scott had gone to prison, Anderson wrote a letter to John Wilkerson demanding that his name be removed from the college, completely disassociating himself from the college and threatening to sue if his name were not removed from the college, which, of course, has still not happened.
2: Yes, so in this letter, uh Russell Anderson states that he has donated over 12 million dollars to First Baptist Church of Hammond over the years, which wow. Anyway, this is what the le- this is what the letter says. It says, "Pastor Wilkerson, when you became pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond, you began to call me and I made you aware of the problem at the college and church whose staff members and teachers did not believe that the King James Bible was inspired preserved word of God." Pastor, you have disobeyed the advice and instruction of Dr. Jack Hiles, the founder of Hiles Anderson College and pastor of First Baptist Church. Therefore, it is my belief that you are not qualified for the position you hold. Also, Pastor, may I remind you that I tried to get you to reinstate Dr. Ray Young as president of Hiles Anderson College shortly after you became pastor and... He was removed because he believed Doctor Jack Hyle's teachings on the King James Bible, but you would not accept the advice of an eighty-four-year-old man, the co-founder of Hyles Anderson College. You did exactly as Rehoboam did in First Kings twelve eight, but he Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him and consulted with the young men they were grown up with him and which stood before him. I should note that I have a copy of this letter because Russell Anderson wanted this letter spread around. In fact, we have linked a PDF of this that we found uploaded to the hiles anderson college alumni forum with a note on the front that says you have my permission to show this to everyone with russell anderson's signature so he wanted to write this letter to wilkerson and then he wanted to also have this letter blasted to literally everyone to know that he was mad at wilkerson
0: i think the excerpt that you read from this letter really shows some parts of his personality so he's demanding that ray young be reinstated. He calls names. He calls him Rehoboam. He wields his age and his money over Wilkerson's head because he's not getting his way, and that is that is his pattern consistently, over and over. I'm not getting my way. I am this old, and I have this much money, and I've given you this much money. Why am I not getting my way? Once he gave money somewhere, it seems like he, it seems like he believed he owned the place, and in this letter, he's just pitching a fit because he's not getting what he wanted
2: this is totally nuts to me i I, like i can't help but think that like all of all that he ever does in all of these letters is just name drop jack hiles and say i was jack Hiles' best friend you need to do what i say and i Mm -hmm. gave you this money you need to do what i say now and i'm just like you are a bench warmer with money man
0: it's interesting to me that i as far as i'm aware he did not sue hiles anderson it, because anderson was not in any way above suing people um uh, there was a lawsuit between russell anderson and shenandoah baptist church in 2012 anderson had given the church at the time pastored by jeff owens fifty thousand dollars to open old paths <clears throat> excuse me <coughs> <coughs> ahead, David, take, Jack, that,
2: <coughs> take that baby out
0: <laughs> There's a, it's a, it's a very specific diaphragmatic motion.
2: <coughs> <coughs>
0: <coughs> Thank you for subscribing to our Patreon.
2: No, that's going on the regular one.
0: Don't put that on the regular one. I'm going to trigger people.
2: <coughs> Take that baby out.
0: You're you're still not doing it as well as no, I can. I say, I say, <laughs> I
2: say, I say, I say, I say, I say. No, that's Foghorn Leghorn. No,
0: Anderson gave the church at the time pastored by Jeff Owens fifty thousand dollars to open Old Paths Baptist College, and this was a conditional gift. Um, he would he pledged fifty thousand dollars as long as the church could raise another fifty thousand dollars. But just two weeks after the church accepted the gift, Jeff Owens resigned as pastor, and the college opening was delayed indefinitely. So Anderson sued to get his fifty thousand dollars back. <laughs> Uh, because it was a conditional gift
2: weird thing this happened almost exactly the same time as the jack scoff scandal like it happened in late july 2012 but what what i read about this was that when the pastor had stepped down and they put the bible college on the back burner they gave russell anderson back some of the money in increments saying here's ten thousand dollars back Uh, We're sorry that we didn't open the Bible college. And then they gave him, I think, another $10,000 back later. And then he said, no, I'm suing you for the rest of it, which is weird because I wasn't aware. I I was under the impression that Christians weren't supposed to sue each other or that that was like a serious IFB thing is that Christians don't sue each other.
0: Yeah, it is. Apparently not in this particular case. It's odd that he was willing to sue... Shenandoah Baptist Church over this, but he didn't sue Hiles Anderson to take his name off the college because for he wrote a demand letter, and for years and years it was a rumor of, oh, he's just about to sue. He is going to sue to have his name taken off the college. And then it never happened.
2: Maybe First Baptist Church of Hammond just has too much juice, and Shenandoah Baptist Church is not as big as Hiles Anderson. They don't have as much power as Hiles Anderson, and he figured that if he could sue them, then maybe people would take him seriously and he wouldn't have to sue anybody else. I, I don't know. I guess that's kind of the end of of this story. I don't know what to think about this other than it just... Know that th- this isn't exactly prosperity gospel.
0: It kind of is because of the tithing thing, but it's a little different flavor.
2: It's I feel like it's prosperity gospel adjacent. When money and religion cross paths in this kind of way, it really feels to me like... The money can be a way for extremely unsavory people to get access to, you know, a way for them to feel like they're better than everybody else. And 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 I mean, the money is the thing that makes people have to put up with this.
0: And see, that's not even exactly what I see here, because what I see is I don't see that money gave an unsavory person access to bad behavior. I think money gave a pretty average person access to bad behavior and continued to enable him down a path of worse and worse behavior. I don't know. I mean, I didn't <clears throat> I didn't know him when he was 30 or 40 or 50. It's hard to it's hard to know. I knew him when he was 70 and creeping me out.
2: I you know, I didn't grow up with anywhere near the kind of money that russell anderson has but i know people i've met people who have who have that kind of money or have have had that kind of money and have had more money than that the thing that the thing that just keeps being the ding 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 for me is the yelling at the waiter or the waitress when the coffee isn't hot enough and getting extremely angry just to show how much better Mm -hmm. you are than somebody else or the dropping the watch in the person's hand to say, "Look how much money I have. How does it feel to be holding more money than you've ever seen in your entire life? I wear this. I I wear a hundred thousand dollars on me at all times. How does that feel to know that I'm better than you?"
0: In the authorized biography, portrays him as a young man very differently.
2: Yeah, the
0: the biography is portraying him in nineteen sixty eight. And he was born in 31, right? So at 37 years old, um, becoming a millionaire and deciding not to tell anybody and then accidentally getting outed as a millionaire in the sword of the Lord. What he wants us to believe, what he wanted us to believe, what the authorized biography wants us to believe is that he was not that person he was not somebody who would drop his watch in your hand he was not somebody who would lord it over a server in a restaurant at 37 like he was at 70 whatever it's hard to know it's an interesting conversation um i will tell you i'm pretty tired of talking about this guy
2: yeah me i can understand why you would be um i want to say sadie thank you for sharing your story uh and and sharing your experiences with this weird ass old man who would call a 12 year old his girlfriend that's a weird thing to do
0: i just i just hope it's helpful to somebody because i really i shared this because i think and i hope that it is bigger than me i i shared this because i i don't know if there are uh, how many girlfriends there are out there um but i don't think that's really the point I think the point is the, the culture of grooming in, in the IFB, the weird culture around money in the IFB, the weird culture around power in the IFB. And I think if nothing else, maybe my story can help illustrate that and help other people deconstruct how they were taught about money, how they were taught about power and how they may have experienced grooming. And I hope that it's helpful to somebody.
2: Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, this has been the Leaving Eden Podcast. You can follow us on social media, at on Facebook and Instagram and uh, TikTok at Leaving Eden Podcast. You can follow me on wherever I am at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Sadie?
0: You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One, and on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie.
2: Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye.